book three part seven of susan by ernest old meadow this librivox recording is in the public domain st veronique part seven four o'clock these worries have been too much for my nerves i feel all overstrung as if a little thing would make me break down and cry for example just now i went into susan's room to make sure that she had taken me out of her frame i find that instead of taking me out she's left me in and taken out reddington there i am staring across the hinges at an empty oval last time i saw the frame it had both of us in it and susan's room was warm and brilliant with floods of morning sunshine but just now her room was chill and dim the paper background of the empty oval showed up ghostly white i walked to the mantelpiece and gazed down at my own photograph instead of looking like one half of a happy honeymoon couple i looked like a girl widow staring at a shroud outside in the sunless garden a gust of wind smote a leafy apple branch against the window like a slap of a hand and at the same moment a great dreariness and utter loneliness fell like a blight like a frost like a black shadow on my soul i have come back to my own room where it is more cheerful but i see that i have written too much to-day in this book since sunrise this morning i must have written two or three hours no wonder i am morbid and dumpy i swear an oath whatever happens and whatever susan may report not another word will i write to-day thursday morning in the summer-house i hate to think of yesterday hitherto i have hugged a fond belief that my nerves were of steel yet the trivial shock of gibson's chase coming on top of my early rising bowled me over for the rest of the day it is humiliating to read all the stuff i wrote in this book the feverish retrospects prospects introspects after i had skimmed through it this morning i nearly vowed to lock it up and not write another word until i am back in england but if i don't jot them in a diary i mix up dates so frightfully for example i was trying the other night to remember the three days when ruddington saw me with susan while alice was with me i let this book slide and the result is i can't recall being with susan once except at the post office and susan declares that ruddington's photograph isn't the least like the young man who stared at her in a dark green suit i don't even remember where susan was while he was feasting his eyes on her through the pillars of the monument perhaps she sat behind alice and me or did she sit with the servants it's tantalizing to think that perhaps i've seen him and perhaps stared back at him and that it's all slipped out of my mind so i shan't stop entering things in this journal but i mean to enter them more curtly luckily there isn't much to write about susan and gibson even if i were disposed to write it susan didn't come back till half-past four until after dinner she avoided the subject and it was only when i was mounting to a very early bed that i asked any questions well susan i said and what have you done with poor gibson i've sent him home miss to england oh no miss to grand pont he had to go to grand pont whether you sent him there or not i said but didn't you give him an answer susan had replied to my questions rapidly and defiantly but without any warning she sat down plump on the top stair with the candlestick in her lap and sobbed the plentifulest and heartiest sobs of all her many sobbing since ruddington wrote his first letter overwrought as i was i wonder that the unexpectedness and oddity of it did not drive me into hysterical laughter 
i controlled myself only by speaking to susan roughly get up you silly creature i said georgette will hear you and madame what's the matter oh miss gertrude she sobbed i know i oughtn't to have said the things to gibson that i did say i oughtn't i know i know then what did you say them for it was all his fault miss not mine i oughtn't to have said the things i did but why did he say such bitter cruel awful things to me i've no idea susan i said taking the candlestick from her lap and leaving her to follow she did not appear till she had dried her eyes and regained some composure when she came into my room her lips were set and she did not speak susan i explained i was sorry to cut you short but we mustn't have scenes on the stairs besides to-night i'm tired out gibson upset me this morning but i'm sorry if you've quarrelled susan broke down again i hate him miss she cried with a stamp of her pretty foot i shan't never forgive him for the things he's said to-day i shan't never speak to him again not a word miss not if i live to be a thousand at that i stopped her and i don't know any more friday three o'clock susan came to me in the summer-house this morning and said firmly please miss i've decided certainly i am out of sorts as she paused on the verge of her announcement my heart stood still no doubt the strain and excitement of these three weeks have sapped me and mined me and susan's and gibson's affairs have been so constantly present to my mind that i suppose they have become affairs of my own anyhow i felt myself chilling ridiculously and going pale as susan spoke what have you decided i asked at last i have decided replied susan in her most important manner that i will keep company with his lordship for a month i mean miss when we're back at traxelby you'll take him for a month on trial i said jesting feebly yes miss i don't think i ought to be married to him till i'm sure i can put up with him of course susan i answered but that was settled all along he isn't expecting you at present to say that you will marry him he simply asks whether he may come in person and persuade you yes miss said susan colouring charmingly and after thirty seconds she added please miss gertrude i beg pardon but when shall we go back to traxelby the prospect vexed me suddenly and enormously i foresaw myself enmeshed for another month in ignominious arrangements for the comings and goings of the lord of the towers to the lady's maid at the grange the presentiment of inevitable complications and humiliations on my very own territory was too much for my patience and i answered susan sharply really susan i said do try to understand that i must think about myself a little as well as you with all these worries i feel as if i've hardly had three clear days at st veronique all these three weeks you and lord reddington might be the only people in the world i'm very sorry miss said the bride-elect completely penitent i only asked miss so that we could could what put it in the letter miss susan i inquired how have you got on with your writing this letter will be very short don't you think you can manage it yourself bring down my writing-case and your own pen and see what you can do i'll try miss she said most deeply disappointed and she went away 
when she sat down again by my side i admit that susan astonished me by the speed and the tolerable skill with which she executed a fully addressed envelope but my surprise had a short life it seems that susan's handwriting exercises have been practically confined to the scribing and rescribing a hundred times of the words lord ruddington and ruddington towers but when she sat face to face with a blank sheet of note-paper ideas words and penwomanship alike failed susan sighed moaned squinted wriggled ate the penholder pouted and finally adorned the middle of the paper with a big tear doubtless it was my duty to transmit that sheet of paper tear-drop and all to the lord ruddington so that he might frame it in gold and ivory or treasure it in a casket of bejewelled silver but i was quite heartless this morning i snatched the sheet away unkindly crushed it up profanely and said you're wasting paper susan and what's worse you're wasting time can you do it or not no miss whimpered susan her shoulders began to heave and she shed two more big tears hand me my own pen then i said less harshly and a clean sheet of paper you may come back in ten minutes to see if what i've written will do i know it will do miss said susan fervently all the letters you write miss are beautiful i don't always understand them at first but when i think them over and over after they're posted now run along susan i cut in i'll leave the letter inside this case in my room your own envelope will do post it if you think it is all right here is the letter dear lord ruddington your question is do i consent to one or more interviews between us on my return to england my answer is yes after we have met one or the other or both of us may decide that it is better we should not meet again i repeat that you have read too much into my letters and that you have formed expectations concerning me which are bound to be disappointed i think our meetings like this correspondence ought not to be oftener than once a week and that we ought to make up our minds once for all at the end of the month when our return day is fixed i must tell all that is in my mind to miss langley and must fall in with her wishes as to the place and time of meeting probably she will prefer london to traxelby i hope to hear that you are well yours very sincerely susan briggs i can't expect susan to be over-pleased to use her own old scared phrase it gives his lordship a chance of backing out but it makes the only arrangements that are fair and safe all round besides if susan thinks it is too prudent and cold she can easily warm it up by getting georgette to shove in an appropriate collection of sentimentiferous flowers saturday night this day have coffeed read les chouans bathed lunched read more chouans walked to the village dined read more chouans and am just going to bed sunday night there was a letter for susan this morning with the grandpon postmark she regarded gibson's writing on the envelope with darkling brows and thrust the packet unopened into her pocket so far as gibson is concerned i am not exactly delighted with the situation he ought to go home but i can't tell him so when the new lady ruddington begins her reign at the towers gibson will hardly enjoy life at the grange i shall feel his going very much but i'm getting used to ruddington's wrecking he's wrecked my holidays he's stealing susan and i suppose i must spend the autumn watching him smash up my whole household in any case 
i mustn't command or persuade gibson to leave grandpont so long as he thinks that a smattering of motor mending will help him in his next place i can't guess what the poor lad has written to susan or how she is going to take it but love and hate even the loves and hates of poor and simple people come home to me so vividly here at st veronique that i can't help feeling miserable over gibson's trouble with the undimmed sun shining down from a cloudless heaven on the endless waters and the immeasurable uplands such elemental verities as love and life and death seem to be at home it was to berigny that i went for mass the cure spoke to me afterwards as i was sitting under the shadow of the calvary he is a simple soul but he talked with spirit and intelligence about his church and his country i found him still smarting under the well-meant fussiness of two old maids from bournemouth who were at the hotel du dauphin last month it appears that they distributed evangelical tracts in french wherein the present troubles of the church in france were explained as a divinely appointed punishment of popery and as a divine call to the french people to embrace scriptural truth the cure spoke with fine scorn of that british sectarian animosity which hates the pope ten times worse than the devil and he confirmed what i had learned from the more blatant paris journals that the so-called campaign against clericalism is at heart a campaign against christianity and not only against christian dogma but even against many ancient precepts of christian morals more he confirmed what i have myself read in the speeches of deputies and even of ministers that the attack is not merely against christianity but against the whole idea of supernatural religion and that it is avowedly an attempt to establish a lay state a purely secular community trained from childhood to believe that all religion is superstition and that human science alone can teach men how to live and die after the cure went home to break his fast i still lingered in the churchyard a new plank monument had been raised during the week over a new tomb and its jet-black letters on a snow-white ground reminded me of the resolve i had made to offer a de profundis for the faithful dead i found the place in my paroissien and said the opening words aloud the sound of my own voice in that sunny field of death frightened me and i stopped i began again reading to myself but it was of no use i couldn't go on when it comes down to downright earnest you can't skip from one religion to another lost in a crowd one can coquette with another religion tolerate it even enjoy its unfamiliar ancient ritual but with my de profundis it was different i couldn't shed my protestantism like an old cloak in the twinkling of an eye not that i felt as i sat down again on the platform of the calvary that praying for the dead was false doctrine and superstitious error i dared not say it was true but still less dared i say that it was false i thought of the two old maids from bournemouth their half-knowledge their meddling and i felt it would be at the very least an unpardonable impertinence to offer doubting prayers for needs that i could only half understand i ought to have remembered the ancient mariner how with a heart as dry as dust seven days seven nights he stood alone on a wide wide sea with death how at last he watched the water-snakes coiling and swimming blue glossy green and velvet black in the shadow of the ship how a spring of love gushed from his heart and he blessed them unaware and how the self-same moment he could pray with me it was the other way about at Birigny this morning i began with faith and ended with unfaith i went to pray and came away to doubt 
hardly had i clasped my book and resolved that it would be a bad taste to pray before a shadow fell upon all things the light of the sun was broad and bright but within me there grew a bleak wonder that any one should be able to believe in god i mean the christian's god of course if he is truly identical with the eternal cause of the universe and yet yearns for man's love and worship how can his heart be content that his right arm should hang idle while puny unbelievers are closing his temples and muzzling his messengers i looked along the wooded ravine where the beck chatters down to st veronique with grand pont spire away to the right and i thought of susan and ruddington and gibson if god's delight is in the virtuous happiness of men and women why this hateful tangle perhaps it was a blasphemous thought but the tangle was so cruel so useless so cunning that it seemed to require an omnipotent devil for its explanation the cruelty of it brought tears to my eyes i thought for the first time of a coincidence that deepened the wrong susan ruddington and i we are all orphans as for gibson if he has parents it is fifteen years since they made a sign each one of us robbed before we could speak or think or remember of a mother's care and love and for compensation gibson cheated of love altogether susan beloved where she cannot love ruddington loving with no love to answer i thought of myself if the christian's god is one with the upholder of all things his was the lightning which struck the old grange and slew my father and mother as they slept where are they to-day are they annihilated body and soul as dead as stones on the beach or do their spirits wander wearily in profundis bowed under the burden of new sorrows awful and unknown yes i thought of myself except granny who was fifty years my senior who has ever loved me dearly whom have i ever dearly loved no one not even alice though we have been good chums i resolved on thursday never again to think the thoughts i thought before the glass but thoughts will not be denied in the churchyard this morning as i sprang up and paced among the graves a hot vast rebellious anger nearly drove me mad to-day i knew that i was made for love for a love immense as the sea everlasting as the hills more splendid than the sun why has it been written that love must pass me by so i did not say a de profundis i know that god exists but the depths seem too deep for him to pity and the heights too high for him to hear i clanged the churchyard gate behind me harshly and it was in vain that the jet-black letters on the snow-white plank of the new grave whispered if you please monday two forty five p m susan is behaving strangely and i don't like it there is a letter from reddington when it arrived susan made no secret of it but she has neither shown it to me nor mentioned it although she has been with me all the morning in one sense i grant that it is susan's letter not mine and that she is under no obligation to let me read a line but in another sense it is as much mine as hers the letters ruddington writes are answers to my letters not susan's the susan he thinks about and writes to is no longer the palpable susan with whom he fell in love at traxelby he has a new susan a composite susan a susan who never was and never will be a susan idealized as much from my letters as from his recollections of her face if susan at last feels competent to compose and write her replies well and good 
but she should say so to take back the whole affair into her own hands without a word is rather cool not that i care one jot about what ruddington has written but i do feel rather sick about susan's uncouthness after the pains i've taken it is so monstrously ungrateful end of book three part seven